Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Hi, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford and welcome to Local Zero. So this episode is all about our electricity networks. How we manage our networks is critical to keeping the lights on, pushing bills down and bringing low carbon power generation onto the grid to tackle climate change. Absolutely. And today we're going to be exploring why our networks are not currently fit for purpose and how they'll need to change as we move towards that net zero future. Today we're joined by some very exciting guests. First, we have Professor Keith Bell, Scottish Power Chair in Smart Grids at the University of Strathclyde and a member of the UK's Climate Change Committee. If we're going to have uh, lots of lots of us using heat pumps as well as uh, electric vehicles, inevitably there's got to be investment in enhancing the capacity of the networks and we've got to target it in the right way. We're also joined by Dr Jeff Hardy, who's a senior research fellow in the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. Before this, he was head of sustainable energy futures at the GB energy regulator Ofgem. So he brings a wealth of expertise to today's conversation. Over time, we've actually been reducing the amount of electricity needed because of energy efficiency behaviours over the last couple of decades. So there's actually less electricity in total going through the grids. We have a dedicated Twitter handle, and if you haven't already, go and find us and also follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions there. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you need more than 280 characters to share your thoughts. And of course, it wouldn't be Local Zero without Fraser. So welcome, Fraser. How is everybody doing? How is everybody doing? Very well, thank you. Summer is here. The t-shirt's on, even the shorts. It's feeling... uh, very summery. How about you guys? Yeah, I can't believe the weather we've had over the last few weeks. It's just been sweltering. I can't, I mean, obviously this is Glasgow's, you know, two weeks of summer. <laughs> yeah. And talking to our producer, uh, Karis, she's saying she's in Spain at the moment, 41 degree heat, eee. air conditioning blazing, which, you know, I guess many of us will be thinking, oh, I wish I was on holiday, but actually some pretty frightening signs down. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know now. if I could cope with that. And <laughs> no, I mean, so- just the, the temperatures, just look at what's been happening in Canada and North America. It's insane. Scandinavia, temperature records toppling all over the world. So yeah, it is never more pressing than to cover the issues of climate change than it is now. And hence why we're talking about it. So what's on the menu today? Well, and actually, I think I think talking about air conditioners is a really, a really great way into this because today we're talking about our networks and we're talking about why they're not fit for purpose. And actually, for me, this all comes down to some of the changes that we're seeing in our homes, in our towns and our communities. And we're starting to see more, more and more technologies like air conditioners or heat pumps, uh, electric vehicles, solar on our roofs, maybe batteries in our garages. And all of these changes that we're seeing at that local level are starting to have an impact on our networks. So critical, critical issue. They certainly are. I mean, the, the network that we're running today, the, the grid, whatever you want to call it, is is something that was designed for type of use, uh, type of management, which is f- completely redundant now today or, or becoming so. So it's it's almost designed for big generators, centralized generators, typically fossil fuel and non-intermittent generators, providing power to centers of demand. 
problem is now we're seeing many more householders, decentralized generators, for example, solar on roofs, starting to play a role in this grid. So they're feeding into the grid at this low voltage network. And the other confusing issue, which is adding complexity, is that people are being encouraged to change their demand through things like time of use tariffs. And we've also got the technologies like you've mentioned there, storage, EVs. The thing, the network is becoming far, far more complex to manage, but there are opportunities. So that's what we're kind of wanting to explore today. And if we don't make the changes, Becky Fraser, we're in trouble, big trouble. So I'm, I'm someone, I, I can obviously work in this space, appreciate the, the need for change and, and the issues that we face, but networks and all of the, the kind of the policy, the regulation, the technical elements that go along with it, it can be quite a labyrinth to, to get your head around, right? I did, uh, in fact, Becky, we worked on a, a report a few months ago where I was tasked with unpacking a lot of the, the changes happening off gem, these kind of things just now. And I will put my hand up and admit that I wrote this report, submitted it to the project partners, and I don't necessarily feel any the wiser on a lot of these issues because it is, it's complex, it's, it's acronyms. And um, so for someone like me who doesn't have a clear grasp on the networks. Why is this important to net zero? And what sort of changes do you think we need to start to see? Well, I'll start on that and then maybe Matt will come in. So I have a, a more technical background. And I think from a from a technical perspective, and you know, you did raise the point that the regulatory side of things is really confusing. And maybe I'll let Matt come on to that or some of our guests. But just from a technical perspective, our networks need to be balanced all the time. So the amount of energy we're generating and pushing into the networks needs to be the same as the amount of energy we're drawing out of the networks. I mean, you could think of it like your garden hose, right? So what goes in must come out. And you can't push more in than you're pulling out or pull more out than you're pushing in. It's the same whether you're talking about water or networks or whatever. And that balancing becomes harder and harder as you start to see more and more people trying to push stuff in, like Matt was saying, when you start to get new generation technologies. And, you know, you've been recently uh, talking us through the solar that you're putting on the roofs in schools. Well, some of that energy that you're going to be generating in Glasgow is going to be pushed into the grid. And that means that the people that are operating the grid, our network operators, need to understand what all the energy is that's coming in, understand where it's going to, and keep it balanced on a, you know, microsecond by microsecond scale. And that's just challenging. That's a really good explanation, Becky. I think in, a, in another way, you can think of it, the more action there is at the low voltage, and that means the pipes, the wires that are connecting your home to the, the grid, the, the ones that you will be familiar with that keep your lights on, the more action there is there in terms of people feeding in or changing their, their time, that they're drawing down energy, um, maybe shifting it from day to night time. The more that these network operators need to have a handle on what's happening in your house, your neighbor's house, and the whole street. So they need to be able to monitor and understand what's happening there because the national grid, um, the, you know, the electricity, the energy system operators that are, that are operating at that, at that have the bird's eye view over the whole grid and they're responsible for keeping the lights on and for you know, avoiding major blackouts. They're relying much more on what's happening at that low, low voltage level. So if, they, if there's little coordination and management at low voltage uh, level, um, those lights might just go out. Yeah, so it's it's one of those things, I guess it's a prime example of the importance of the local, right? It would be very, very easy to think, okay, I'm just going to fling a solar panel up on my roof or invest in an electric vehicle, and that's that. But actually, those household-level, local-level interactions have huge implications across national energy provision. I think we better bring our guests on, eh? Yeah, bring them in. I'm Dr. Jeff Hardy, a Senior Research Fellow at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. I research smart local energy systems as part of the Energy Revolution Research Consortium. Two other quick things. I also sit as Deputy Chair of the UK Power Network's Customer Engagement Group, which will no doubt come up later. And I sit on the board of a renewable energy developer, Public Power Solutions Limited. Hello, I'm Keith Bell. I hold the Scottish Power Chair in Smart Grids at the University of Strathclyde. I'm also a co-director of the UK Energy Research Centre, which is a multi-university, multidisciplinary research effort aiming to inform energy policy and the energy transition. And I'm a member of the Climate Change Committee. Welcome 
welcome Keith, welcome Jeff. It's great to have you both here. Um, as you know, today we're talking about our energy networks and really trying to understand their evolution, like where they came from, what we're doing today and why they're not fit for the future. But I'm wondering if we can just take a step back because not everybody that listens to this show has a really strong electrical engineering background. In fact, uh, the three of us are still struggle between ourselves sometimes to get to grips with it all. So Keith, I'm wondering if maybe you can just give us a very high level overview of how the grid works today and why that's a bit of a problem. I think we should probably start with, you know, what is the system anyway? When we talk about a power system or electricity system, what, what is it? What does it comprise? And, and it's got three main elements. Generation, you know, where you get this electrical energy from, converting energy from other forms into electricity. The transmission network to take that energy, that power across the country. And the distribution network to take it into each building, each premises where, where you're using it. And back before 1990... The whole electricity sector in the UK was state-owned, and all those three parts were part of state-owned companies. And the local distribution companies bought power from, from the generators, from the big power stations typically, although well, if you go far enough back, they were all little power stations, transported that energy via the National Transmission Network. You know, we're quite used to talking about the national grid that then became one of the private companies when things got privatised. Uh, and then each of us bought our electrical energy from our local distribution company. But then, yeah, in 1990, the whole sector was was liberalised, opened up to competition, sold off to private owners. Initially in generation, in the production of electricity, when there was uh, introduced a wholesale market for electrical energy with different power stations and their newly privatised owners competing with each other. However, the buyers in that market were still the various local distribution companies. And it wasn't until a few years later, I think about the year 2000, I think, wasn't it, Jeff? I think when retail competition was introduced so that everyone had the right to choose who to buy their electricity from. And there was a similar thing for gas. Now, in practice, that meant the establishment of uh, what we now term suppliers or retailers who are, in effect, agents who act on behalf of us in the wholesale market. Now, they don't physically produce, transmit, or distribute anything. They pay fees to the transmission and distribution network owners, which are also now privately owned, uh, for the right to use their networks to get the power they've bought from the generators through to their own customers. So all of us, we pay our bills to one of these suppliers, and they in turn pay bills to the network companies. But there's one other really important player in this, which is the regulator, Ofgem, who you used to work for, Jeff. Ofgem is the Office for Gas and Electricity Markets, and it is the energy regulator. So it's doing a couple of things. So one is because these electricity networks and gas networks are natural monopolies, you can't choose who you're connected to. You know, these are regional based network companies, so they are regulated as monopolies. And I'm sure we'll get into the joys of price controls a little bit later in this podcast. But then also Ofgem looks after the competitive parts of the market as well. So it does retail, wholesale regulation. So how electricity is bought and sold and these energy suppliers, these electricity suppliers that Keith was talking about, who you know we as customers have the relationship with. They're the ones that bill us. And they're the ones that then pass those costs back to the other bits of the system, like these electricity networks and so forth. So, so Ofgem's got a really important role um, in making sure that competitive entities are competing fairly and treating their customers fairly, and also making sure that these networks are doing the right things, um, including for net zero, for their customers, um, for all parties that are using them, but also that they're doing it cost effectively. You know, so they're not overcharging. Um, they're not acting perhaps like natural monopolies would do if they weren't regulated. Becky, you mentioned what, what's what's funny about an electricity system. You know, what does it take to make it work? And and that's you know predominantly the responsibility of these network companies. Although you know how those responsibilities mesh together is a kind of another another issue, which we will definitely come on to. But you know, why does it matter? Why does have to? Why does there have to be somebody that pays attention? You know. The economists, I'm sure, would ideally just leave these markets, you know, the wholesale market and the retail market, just to get on, get on with it by themselves. And and the the problem is that that an electricity system is actually pretty unforgiving, in that it has minimal inherent energy storage capacity. So so it's got it's not got much kind of margin for error, if you like. If 
if there's a bit of a timing error between you know the production and the and the consumption if you think about other commodities like i don't know you know loaves of bread or pints of milk you know if you've got a fridge you can get a bit of storage you know so you don't have to kind of get the milk from the cow just at the moment as you're there with your kind of your your coffee cup ready to receive it clearly you've not been to my house key no i haven't actually no but okay well that's an interesting experience if you've got uh, got the cattle on the lawn i'm sure it's well fertilized i mean it is more like that kind of you know cow to cup kind of arrangement in the electricity system so we have to balance second by second the production of, of electrical energy and well, the rate of production with the rate of use. So we talk about the term power, which is the rate of production or use of energy. And then energy is the quantity we, we use when we talk about over a period of time. So we have to balance that and we can see that through the system frequency. So we have an alternating current based system. So it alternates at about 50 hertz, so you know, 50 times a second. It does fluctuate. And, and we can see whether it's out of balance because the frequency might be falling which means there's not enough generation to meet demand at that moment, or it might be rising, in which case there's too much. Fortunately, we've got automatic controls on the on the generators, which monitor the frequency and then will adjust their output accordingly. But every now and again, there'll be some big disturbance that gives it gives the frequency a big kick. You know, it's a big imbalance, and then we've got to sort of respond to that and deal with it in, in some way. And the other thing we've got to do is keep the voltages within limits for, for safety reasons predominantly, but also to make sure that our appliances will work properly. And then to make sure that the wires carrying the power from the generators all the way through to our appliances don't get overloaded, that they don't get too hot. You know, whenever current is flowing, you get a, you get heating. And if they get too hot, you've got a risk. I mean, the main risk is a, is a, a short circuit current happening, you know, a flashover, which as well as being very dangerous, depending on where it happens and how long it happens for, uh, risks the, the stability of the whole system, actually. So, but again, fortunately, we've got protection devices on on the network to to spot if and where there's a, there's a, a short circuit and isolate that quickly and safely and let the rest of the system carry on. So this is a very complex landscape. I mean, just the sheer number of of different organisations involved in terms of the you know the retailers, suppliers, generators transmission grid operators, distribution operators. I mean, and ultimately all working together within this cohesive set of regulations to make sure that our lights stay on. So I guess how and why are things changing? Why is this even an issue that we need to be discussing now that the grid's worked fine for hundreds of years or, you know, decades and decades? So what's happening now that means that this has to change? In a word, decarbonisation. So, you know, we've got to get our energy from different sources. In the UK, we've, we've used fossil fuels as our source of electrical energy, you know, burning fuels to make heat, to make steam under high pressure, to turn turbines, etc. We're not in a fortunate position like people are in Norway, for example, where they've got fantastic, you know, geography for, for storing water, building dams and having tunnels to let water flow through and turn turbines. But we do have lots, lots of high wind. Uh, so we can we can build wind turbines to kind of harvest the energy and, and make electricity, but the technology, the kind of you know electrical equipment that's done that's used to do that is very different from the kinds of electrical machines that we've had before, and we don't have that storage capability that you have with a pile of coal or a pipe full of full of gas under high pressure. So yes, there's that kind of balancing challenge that we've got to address. And, and it's made difficult by the fact that it's it's not windy all the time. And we've got quite a lot of uh, solar PV generation now as well. And again, of course, it's not it's not sunny all the time. So we've got this, uh, you know, the kind of the variability of the resource and the, and the differences in the technology to, to have to deal with. So Jeff, looking at this, maybe not from a purely sort of decarbonisation perspective, are there other drivers at play? Are there other reasons why we're needing to think about managing the grid in a different way? Well, I guess there's there's all sorts of things going on. So, you know, we have implications of climate change itself, which are slightly changing things in the grid. So there's just a couple of small examples. So electrical equipment doesn't like rapid temperature changes in particular, and you can transmit less power through lines when it's really hot. Just simple things like that. So if temperature's going up or if temperature's going up very quickly during the day, that causes some issues. Other things like trees grow quicker during this. And one of the major things that stops um, grids working is trees falling on them and knocking infrastructure down. You know, so there's lots of effort going into just thinking about how you adapt these networks to climate change. But then there's lots of other things going on at the same time. So we have 
in addition to all of this interesting stuff that's going on on the electricity generation side, you've also got a change of demand going on at the same time. So decarbonization, now there's two things going on actually. Over time, we've actually been reducing the amount of electricity needed because of energy efficiency behaviors over the last couple of decades. So there's actually less electricity in total going through the grids. The other thing is that we're expecting that demand to change quite a lot going forward in the future because this decarbonization will also result in new demands, all of them local in the most part. So electric vehicles replacing fossil fuel vehicles, for example, so batteries on wheels moving around these distribution networks, and then also potentially moving from gas to electric or other forms of heating that haven't got any carbon. So that means you've got new demands and new generation going on simultaneously, uh, and the network in the middle kind of like sorting out all of the interesting new challenges and and of course, never far from the headlines is customers' bills. Uh, I mean, obviously, roll off gem. You're involved with UKPN, UK Power Networks. Are we having to look at managing the the network in a different way to avoid bills growing or potentially even lowering them? Yeah, that, that that's right, Matt. So one of the things that's happening at the moment is some massive optimization and calculation that goes on, which is how do you accommodate changes in generation, changes in demand, uh, changes in kind of like pressures and things that are happening on these networks without the cost going up. So if we take that the future is going to be much more renewable and there's going to be all of these new demands on it, what could happen, in fact, what would be very likely to happen if there wasn't an emphasis on doing the right thing on networks is network companies would probably build a grid up to about six times bigger than today. You know, that's the kind of like what would happen if you met all of that new demand and did it predominantly through renewables. You'd need to have a grid that was capable of moving around lots of power and meeting very high peak demand. It's a lot of copper. A lot of copper. What's actually happening is we're seeing a much more emphasis on this so-called smart and flexible grid operation. So what that means is the network operator running their grid in a much smarter and more flexible way, which means trying to match demand and supply much better. And in a very renewable system, instead of what Keith was saying earlier, where you match with really flexible supply, whatever demand there is, in the future, what you're doing is trying to have demand meet what supply is available because the wind's blowing or the sun's shining and therefore electricity is being generated very cheaply or it is not. And that's really all a smart grid is doing whilst trying to move that power around in a very effective way without blockages in the networks and so forth. But that's really the essence of it. You're trying to build an energy system that's as small as you can do to meet that future demand. That's all a smart grid is when we come down to it. Yeah, I would, I would agree. It's about you know utilising the infrastructure in the most effective way and avoiding having to overbuild the infrastructure. I mean, you know, the conventional historic way of building a distribution network was what would be described as fit and forget. You know, just just build enough of it so that anyone that's connected to it can do what they like. You don't have to pay too much attention once they've connected. At the kind of whole system, whole electricity system scale, that balancing has always been done by flexing generation. And uh, when you've got, you know, piles of coal or pipes full of gas, that's that's doable. That's what we've been doing. If you've got you know a reservoir with with uh, with water in it and you can open and close the taps, again you could be flexible on the generation side. The kind of holy grail for energy economists has been to unlock the flexibility on the demand side, and and that's becoming more and more important. When when you know you have wind and solar resources varying, can the demand for electricity flex to fit with when it's windy and sunny? Uh, so that's kind of at the, at the whole whole electricity, you know, national scale. And then you can also look at that at the more local scale because you've got the kind of limitations of your local network in getting the power in or out. So if we can get that, you know, balancing more local, well, balancing within the network's limits, it doesn't necessarily have to mean kind of perfectly balanced, but, you know, within the import or export limits, if we can get that right, then again, you know, it promises much more kind of cost-effective use of the resources. And I think this is kind of getting to the crux of, of the conversation today and, and how we start to create those changes in the way that we're managing the networks on more and more localized scales. And 
I think, you know, we're starting to hear, or at least in the, the fields that, that we work in, starting to hear more about DSO. So the shift from companies just owning and operating the networks to actually taking a much more active role as system operators. So I'm wondering if you can just explain and break it down, you know, what really is a DSO and how is that going to be different to what they're doing already? Like what are some of the new things that they're going to be doing? I mean, the first thing to talk about is the way that a distribution network is operated. So before we get into sort of the acronyms of, you know, what the hell's a distribution network operator, a DNO, and what's a distribution system operator, a DSO, let's, let's think about, you know, what's physically going on. And, and it, I think the, the key ch- change is away from that fit and forget thing to something that's much more active. So, you know, when it's fit and forget, you know, the network is the distribution network because, by the way, all of this flexibility stuff has always been done at a transmission scale. Uh, but at that kind of large scale, you know, you can you can afford to spend money on on monitoring and control and all that sort of thing. It's a very different thing when you've got, you know, the huge number of individual, you know, system components and actors that you have at the distribution scale. But anyway, it's moving away from this kind of passive operation where one of the things that the distribution network operator does is, um, you know, they're trying to respond to faults that might happen. I mean, none, none of the equipment works perfectly all of the time and you have odd things that happen like, you know, JCBs digging into bits of cable and breaking them or whatever it happens to be. Uh, you rely on the protection then to isolate that fault very very quickly and safely before the poor JCB digger driver is, is uh, suffering anyway. But... Um, you know, they would wait for faults and then repair them as quickly and as safely as possible and get people back on supply. So it's uh, kind of quite reactive and otherwise it's quite it's quite passive. But here, uh, we're now trying to, we're, well, we're connecting more and more generation to the distribution network, uh, not just solar panels on people's roofs, but also, you know, wind turbines in, in fields or whatever it happens to be. You know, can we accommodate them and the power that they might be producing? Uh, well, actually... Maybe you don't have to build the network for all possible combinations of conditions. Maybe it's more cost effective to, well, for a few hours of the year to limit the output from a generator uh, just to stay within the, the, the network's export limits. And, uh, and if you're very generous, you might compensate the wind turbine's owner for, uh, the, for the privilege of doing that. I mean, that doesn't actually happen very much so far, but that's something we might we might come back to. And, and as, as we mentioned already, you know, you also want to make use of flexibility on the demand side. So, you know, we're going to have lots of people charging electric vehicles. Do they have to do it the moment they get home uh, in, in the evening, assuming they've been out to work? That's going to lead to a kind of a big kind of coincident peak, everyone using the networks to do lots of things at the same time. The networks historically have been designed on the assumption that people will be doing different things at different times, that there's a certain amount of diversity uh, and, but if we're all kind of doing things at the same time, you can't do that. And so the, the peak becomes very big and you have to size the network for the, the, the moment of the biggest demand. So can we control these things? Can we persuade people to move the timing of what they're, what they're doing with electricity, do things a bit earlier or a bit later? With, a, with, a, with an electric vehicle that's maybe, you know, on average, if people use EVs in the same way people use combustion engine vehicles, they spend on average 95% of the time not going anywhere. And if it's an EV and it's plugged in, that gives you a lot of flexibility on exactly when you charge it. So if we could spread that out for different people, you know, through different times of the night, for example, and stay within the network's limits. So um, that's what we're trying to get to, is some kind of set of arrangements that encourages people to do that in a way that doesn't adversely impact on them. And then what are the institutional arrangements, the market arrangements or whatever, by which we can make that happen? Jeff, just just in the context of what Keith laid out, the roles of this DSO, this distribution system operator, is this going to have a fundamental change to the way in which we think and consume energy? So what I'm trying to bring this down to is the customer, i.e. you and I, residential customers, businesses on the high street, manufacturers, whoever they may be, are are we going to see a fundamental change now in the way that they engage with with their energy consumption? If if the DSO is, is put in place, I'm thinking local energy markets, flexibility services, a whole, a whole world of possibility? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question, Matt. And the answer depends a little bit. So under the surface, so you know, imagine that duck gliding across a pond. Some customers, you know, households, businesses, etc., may ultimately see no difference at all. 
but there's a lot going on. So what do I mean by that? If we go fast forward to that energy system of the future where you've got an awful lot of uh, weather dependent electricity and an awful lot of new assets connected to the system that demand electricity in different times, like these electric vehicles or different heating systems, what we're likely to see is very dynamic pricing for electricity. So a different price of electricity every half hour for consumers, for customers. Now, we know from lots of evidence that most electricity and gas customers are not terribly engaged with electricity and energy suppliers generally. Something like half the people in the country have never switched. I don't even know what I pay. I don't know what I pay for my We are going to have to have words about this, Becky. You know, you say- <laughs> we've, we've had this chat before. And it's, um, <laughs> but anyway, we'll come back to this. This is not over. You know, that, that is not a very large segment of uh, the British population who are likely to be watching uh, smart meters or in-home display units every half an hour and going, oh my goodness, the electricity price has doubled. I'd better do something different. So what, what I would expect is all of these price signals, like a network operator that we're talking about saying, my grid's constrained, so it'd be really good if we could either turn up some demand so we could soak up all of this extra renewables or turn some demand down. I think a lot of this is going to end up very automated. So I have a deal with an energy supplier um, that basically fixes the price of my energy needs. And in return for giving me a fixed price deal, they manage the risks that they're bearing of these variable prices by automating some of the things in my home. So like Keith was saying about the electric vehicle, they might automate when it's charged, not if it's going to be charged, because you will, as a customer, really want it to be charged but they will have some control over when it might charge overnight. The same with heating systems. You still want to be warm, but you don't really mind if it's not on at a certain time of day, as long as you're still warm. So that kind of automation we might see coming in, and that's going to bake in some of these network price signals, some of the wholesale market price signals, all of that kind of thing. But from a customer's point of view, it's going to probably have to be very simple for the majority of end users. So just to clarify for our listeners, I don't know whether you were saying this was hypothetical or not, but you were saying you were surrendering some of your timing, the the freedom around your demand to your supplier. You're saying that's happening today and and you are generating a benefit. So that's, in in some respects, that's already happening before we have this thing, this body or bodies called a DSO. So you're already kind of doing it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I'm lucky enough to have solar panels on my roof and a battery in my cellar. I'm also lucky enough to have a cellar. I have ceded control over when that battery charges and discharges to my energy supplier because I'm on a half hourly tariff. So I'm on one of these dynamic tariffs and they optimize it. So I maximize the price I'm paid for electricity that gets exported and minimize the price that I pay for electricity coming into my house. By the way, I would just say that it doesn't have to be a DSO that enables all of this. So, you know, that's happening already, what Jeff has just talked about, without there being such a thing called a DSO. Um, so where this DSO idea, I think, has come from is well, partly to try to kind of capture that idea of much more active distribution network operation, just, just in general. But we also have quite a few, not I don't think all necessarily, but quite a few of the distribution network operators in this country arguing that they should be the parties that enable a lot of that stuff given the interaction with the distribution networks and in and in, for one reason i think they've kind of got a bit of an argument which is that we've still got this kind of hard constraint of the network's capacity you know it's it's a finite network what actually happens to the network as a whole is affected by everybody everybody else so you know it seems to need somebody who can have a good kind of coherent view on it so is that the same party that would then enable local energy markets and enable trading such as uh, such as jeff was talking about so keith just to kind of t- tie that off if we have a million jeffs that's a scary thought doing <laughs> doing jeffy things jeffy things at home right is that when we really need to bring the dso in just to kind of get a, a handle on this is that what we're saying because if there's just a handful of jeffs doing jeffy things that isn't a problem. It, it doesn't rock the boat. But is, is, is there a critical mass 
of Jeff's, but of, of people doing, you know, this this demand management, decentralized generation at home, which means we need somebody in to come and coordinate and manage things. I mean, we already have somebody coordinating and managing that. In a sense, that that is the case that it already exists, and we kind of we have to be very brave to abandon it. At the whole electricity system level, you know, there is an electricity system operator. Pretty much every country in the world has a similar sort of idea that somebody's got to keep an eye on the whole thing and how it hangs together. Um, when we have this kind of active operation of distribution networks, it seems like we have to kind of, you know, have the same sort of care and attention and have the same level of coordination. Precisely how a DSO or somebody like that interacts with every individual user, I think that's up for debate. And there are different ways in which it could be organised, I think. But but I, th I, think, I think I would agree with you, Matt, that at some level, some degree of coordination is needed to have visibility of how what everybody is doing with the network is impacting on the network itself and then how the network itself limits what everybody might be doing with it. And can I just say for the record that, that a million Jeffs acting independently in, on, a, on the electricity system would be a disaster, <laughs> <laughs> judging by the amount of tinkering I did early doors. Coming back to this kind of like vision of a thousand or a million Jeffs, I mean, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, and, and you said this yourself, Jeff, you're lucky enough to have solar PV on your roof and a basement to put your battery in. And for every Jeff that is out there that can do that and engage in this way, and, and let's put this into place, it's not just about having the finances to do it. It's also having the wherewithal and the understanding and the ability to engage in this way, because it isn't simple. Like, yeah, there are a whole lot of factors that need to come together to enable this. But for every one of you, there's probably, I don't know, five, 10, 20, maybe a hundred people who just simply can't engage in that way. So do we also need to be worried about the kind of potential unintended consequences or negative outcomes on some people that just simply can't engage in this way? Could they be penalized for the fact that you're able to take advantage of this new system? I, I, I think that's, it's such an important question. And it, genuinely could work out in a multiple tiered way. So just imagine a future where, I don't know, there are a million Jeffs. I'm still getting my head around that concept, by the way. <laughs> I know, exactly. Well, so am I. It's like the future's not big enough for a million we've, Jeffs. We've got the episode title straight away, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this image is, yeah, too much of an image now. But those who are able to afford and also want to get engaged in the future could be the ones who benefit most. However, those who cannot or will not, you know, don't want to engage, don't engage with energy at the moment, could be in principle very disadvantaged. So one simple example of that is the best tariffs on the market might only be available to me and my 999,999 uh, other Jeffs. Um, everyone else, um, who hasn't got the kit or doesn't have the desire to get engaged could be on a worse tariff, effectively subsidizing me because I'm able to tap into all of this wonderful value that, um, let's say, the distribution network operator will pay me and other people will pay me because I've got really flexible kit in my home. Everyone else might not. So I think the critical thing to say now is this has to be a fair transition where everyone can benefit. And that might mean that some people who would not normally be able to get on this ladder are subsidized to have some of this really cool and um, exciting but very essential net zero equipment in their homes. Feels like that, 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 Jeff, there may be this kind of collision between fuel poverty and digital poverty. You know, if you can't have access, if you can't get the app for that, or if you can't, you know, access the, the latest smart gadget or smart refrigerator or charger, then, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be held back. So this is a really important point and, and goes hand in hand with a just transition. I wanted to, to, to end, I think, to you both, just a question on what this smarter, more intelligent management of the distribution network, this lower voltage network, might mean for local climate action. So, you know, the pod is all about local zero. And the question mark is whether this could create or unlock new opportunities for households, for communities to, to do something they may not have otherwise done. So there's a lot of chat about the DSO being this kind of portal or gateway to a local energy market. And 
in in with the absence of lots of subsidies when we've covered this in our previous episodes things like the feed-in tariff has, has fallen away um a lot of communities or local authorities who were doing stuff like we've mentioned Fraser's work with glasgow community energy they're scratching their heads about what they do next so could could this be the answer could they generate a revenue stream and do something for net zero and just transition whilst they're at it well i think that point about the local energy markets is a really really important one and, and- the question is how how those markets can be facilitated. How can you enable somebody who chooses to buy, you know, spare solar energy from someone down the road, and and make sure that that trade can be, you know, physically delivered? This is where the the network operator or the DSO or whoever it is comes into play. Is what is the network infrastructure that enables those trades and those interactions? We have a danger that the network at the moment could be acting as a barrier to it. But if the network can act as an enabler, which is what the network always has been, that's that's fundamentally what it is. It's, it's to enable the use of uh, electrical energy. And of course, it needs the production of it as well as, you know, in order that people can, can use it. You know, do we get the right signals to be able to use things that are available where they're available, given the network constraints, but also signals, uh, on the other hand, to, to where investment in enhancing the network would be best made, you know, if it's an increasing need, well, we're going to have an increasing need. If we're going to have uh, lots of lots of us using heat pumps uh, as well as uh, electric vehicles, inevitably there's got to be investment in enhancing the capacity of the networks. And we've got to target it in the right way uh, to avoid what Jeff talked about earlier of having this massive, potentially massive overinvestment in capacity that's only used a fraction of the time when it turns out if we're being a bit smarter about it, we don't have to use, uh, don't have to have all of that capacity. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. So um, let me give just a few tangible examples. So a little bit like you, Matt, I've been reading a few of the initial business plans that the, the distribution network operators have been putting together to say how they're going to run the network over the five years between 2023 and 2028. And there's a few things that are coming out in there that are quite specific to more local energy projects. So I see in some of the plans that some of the network companies are actually putting forward specific community energy funds you know, to support um, community energy. Because I think they're realizing that these local energy projects can really not only kind of like really engage local communities and provide a lot of kind of like valuable benefits to those communities, but they can also provide a lot of these services that Keith's describing back to the network themselves. So working hand in hand with those communities is actually a win-win. Other things that are going on that I've seen is some really interesting ideas about network companies spending money on making homes and businesses more energy efficient in certain places on the network because that in itself brings down peak demand which means it puts less stress on the network so it's like a win for homes and businesses because you have lower energy bills but it's also a win for the network company because they don't need to do any of these reinforcements um so it's a very interesting product you know to have locational energy efficiency And then the final point that I'm seeing coming through is also network companies are custodians of infrastructure. You know, they operate lots and lots of infrastructure in places around the UK. And this infrastructure itself can have environmental harms, but it could also be um, the land and the surrounding areas could be improved. So you can improve biodiversity. You can improve um, through your supply chains, kind of like embodied carbon in some of the assets that that you're procuring and you can work kind of like very strongly to kind of maybe enshrine some of the principles of, say, circular economy into the products and the things that you're buying. So there's also potentially a really strong environmental plus role that network companies could play, which then bring back benefits locally in terms of biodiversity, natural capital, all of that kind of thing. So there's lots of things that could happen. And the, the mood music is that some of them are going to happen in the next price control. But there's some baby steps here, I feel, for some of the companies as well, because it's not a natural habitat to be thinking about some of these issues. But kudos on Offgem and the companies for doing something positive here. Well, I mean, I think we could probably chat for at least a good few hours more on this topic, but I think we're going to have to find a way to bring that to to a close. And it sounds, and I like the idea of doing that on a very positive message there. So I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for some brilliant insights. And I hope that you're going to stick around for 
our favorite part of the show, which is future or fiction. In fact, Jeff, I'm pretty sure you've been studying up for this. Other than kind of like sitting in a therapy session with Fraser <laughs> and understanding kind of what's on his mind at the moment, I don't think there was any way of like studying for this. So I'm just mentally prepared. <laughs> That's why Jeff's here. I mean, Je- Jeff. Jeff thought he had to talk about th- this, you know, topic to come into future reflection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, the, just the tax. So, his entry fee. I don't listen to you guys prattle on anyway. This is what everyone's really, really here for. Now, it is time for me to hand over for the most exciting part of the episode today, uh, and over to Fraser for future or fiction. Thanks very much, Matt. Yes, so as ever, for the uninitiated, Future or Fiction is a game that we play at the end of every episode with our esteemed guests and hosts, whereby I present the panel with a brand new technological innovation, and they have to decide whether it's real, i.e. it's the future, or if I've completely pulled out my backside, in which case it's fiction. So today's technological innovation is called... Wouldn't it be nice? That's wouldn't it be nice? (laughs) So, as sectors around the world aim to reduce their emissions and improve their sustainability, one sector that has come under recent criticism for its excesses is space exploration. We know that I like a bit of space exploration in future of fiction. Love it. But how about this? In an effort to become more sustainable and reduce space junk, one space exploration group has designed a wooden satellite that can withstand the harsh conditions of space. The satellite can, of course, carry other devices, but the main body is made of specially treated wood to make for a less environmentally harmful system overall. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? Who wants to open up? I feel like it would be inappropriate if we went to anyone other than Jeff to kick us off. So, so firstly, congratulations on another amazing name. So <laughs> I, I think I come for the names more than the, the, the future of fiction. So I'm instantly going towards fiction on this one, not because uh, sustainable, sustainable satellites aren't a good idea, but what I'm imagining is that the body of a satellite compared to all of the fancy innards all of the electrical equipment, all of that other stuff that you want a satellite to be doing something with, it's probably not a great environmental saving overall. The main issue with putting a satellite up in space is the weight of it. <laughs> I love how you're doing a life cycle carbon analysis. There, <laughs> I know, I know. I should, I should, I should mention, Jeff, that um, I was at my satellite woodworking shop this morning. I don't know if that influences whether you think it's real. Or... Oh, now you say that. <laughs> I love it. And I'm almost certainly going to be wrong. But I think that sustainability of satellites compared to the cost of shoving a satellite into orbit is probably quite low on the checklist. You think it's even beneath the greenwashing of Jeff Bezos and Branson and others? The reason I say that is, you know, you can actually imagine possibly the tagline of it's satellite technology, but don't worry, it's green. I mean, well, it's wooden, but it's green. Keith, you're you're the you're the engineer. Well, you're one one of the engineers in the room. Is is there any any credibility in this? Well, on the one hand, I kind of think, you know, certain kinds of wood are actually pretty good materials in terms of the sort of strength to weight ratio. So that, that kind of makes me think there might be something to it, not, not because of the sort of necessarily environmental kind of issues, but just as, you know, it's a quite a good material that you can just grow. On the other hand, the kind of special treatment. I mean, you know, you need certain kind of electromagnetic shielding and whatever when you're out in that kind of very harsh environment, not protected by the biosphere and uh, and whatever. So mm, I I think it's got potentially some plausibility to it, but it depends maybe what he, what Fraser means by the special treatment. Please don't assume that I have any capacity <laughs> to answer that, whether it's real or not. <laughs> <laughs> Titanium coating. Um, Becky. Yeah, I mean, well, I know you can do all sorts of wonderful things with wood and, and use it in ways that we probably didn't initially imagine. And I see those wooden watches, you know, where you've got um, really great technology embedded in this wooden case. But I think that the that the level of precision that would be required in terms of how the satellite is shaped and the, the effort that goes into molding it to get it just so, 
I'm not sure that you could do the same sort of thing with wood. So I think I'm leaning towards fiction with this one as well. Well, I'm, I'm at a sincere disadvantage because I think we've got two engineers and one natural scientist in the room. My social science degree is not going to do me much good here whatsoever. I mean, you know, we're hearing wood being used for all sorts of different things. I'm seeing you can buy the most fantastic and, and most sort of structurally, you know, sound bikes, road bikes now made out of wood. I think it's possible, but I'm with Jeff. I think, would they bother? Probably not. I'm, I'm going to go fiction. The, the other thing that kind of really terrifies me in this is one of the other ones that you definitely got me with was the community grab or was it Mars or the moon or something like that? And I was 100% that that was, that was fact. I've tied myself in knots now because, you know, is it a double bluff or is it, <laughs> um, is it fiction again? So I'm going to, I promised myself I'd stick with my first answer. So I'm going to go with fiction. We've, we've had a triple bluff on this show before, Jeff, as well. So don't, don't put it past him. Fraser, put us out of our misery. We've got four, four fictions. Everyone agrees that this is, that this is fiction. As ever, I'll give all of the guests the opportunity to change their answer now that Matt's given his. <laughs> no, I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> sticking with it, Jeff Keith. We're sticking with fiction. On on balance, I think I was I was I was kind of perched on the wooden fence. Which way am I balancing on that on that fence? Slightly towards fiction. And Becky, you're sticking with it. Yeah, I'm going to stick with fiction. Okay, the answer is. It's the future. (laughs) So I think you need to clarify what the the special coating is. I mean, that was my kind of get out of jail. I will. Jeff, you had one chance. (laughs) I I play the fool. I play the fool, Keith, but I'm I'm switched on. (laughs) (laughs) Becky mentioned this on a call that we had the other day. I was like, oh, no, that's right. We've got Jeff. And I was literally like, I'm going to have to come up with something. And I'm going to have to put the face on. So, yes, it's it's the future. It's the future. A Scandinavian outfit will launch their first wooden satellite. Oh, God, it's not IKEA, is it? They'll launch their first wooden satellite later this year, beating researchers at Kyoto University to be the first to do so. Using a treated birch wood treated with aluminium oxide, the wooden satellite is more environmentally friendly in production avoids burning or releasing the more harmful gases associated with typical satellite materials and reduces space debris on re-entry. Well played, sir. Well played. So there you go. There you go. So there you go. A huge thank you to Jeff and Keith. It's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. Uh, You're welcome back anytime. And a huge thank you to the listeners. If you would like to engage with us, ask any questions, suggest any topics, be they about satellites or other, please contact us at LocalZeroPod on Twitter. Uh, But until then, uh, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.